welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have a friend, colleague, and general Canadian financial advocate guru, Preet Banerjee on the show. He let it out in one of his podcasts recently that he also coaches, in addition to all the things he does, also coaches the children of affluent families on how to be responsible with money. Something I did not know because he's always too busy doing 20 other things. <laughs> but I thought that would make a very, very interesting topic uh, for us to talk about today because I'm a little bit obsessed with intergenerational planning and making sure that it actually works effectively. And this is always a common topic amongst business owners I know and how they make sure that their kids are going to be responsible with everything that they're leaving behind. So, so with that, here's my interview with Preet. Preet, thanks for joining me today. Always a pleasure, Jason. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, well, actually, this is my first time on this podcast. I've been on That's, your FinTech, FinTech Impact Investing or whatever. FinTech Impact. Is that what it is? FinTech Impact. Yes, there exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, uh, and I've been on your podcast. So right now it's uh, it's going back and forth. So if you, you need to start a new one and I need to join it. So <laughs> and like we need an excuse to chat. Okay. So for those out there who aren't familiar with you, tell us about who you are and what it is you do it, it, without getting into everything, including amateur car racing. Continue. Oh man. Well, see, that's the thing. You know why I don't have business cars? I don't know what the hell to put on them, but all right, here's the Coles notes. Originally, I studied neuroscience in university, my undergrad. I graduated. I went to auto racing school as one does, then fell into the world of finance. And then I hosted a show on the Oprah Winfrey Network. Uh, so I hosted that TV show and yeah, I've bounced around. I've been a, a wholesaler, a product designer for kind of a, like a quant index funds. I've been working the last little while primarily as a consultant to the wealth management industry on focusing mostly on commercializations of behavioral economics and behavioral finance into wealth management processes. And then uh, there's, yeah, there's a bunch of other stuff, but yeah, I'm in finance. All around personal <laughs> finance and auto enthusiast. Okay. Let's just say that much. That, that sums it up, <laughs> at least in a nutshell, but the only person with a more eclectic LinkedIn page than myself. Okay. So <laughs> Again, as, as for the introduction, I brought you on because lo and behold, another skill I didn't know you had was coaching the kids of affluent individuals on responsibility with money. So first thing I want to start off with is a couple of things. First off, let me just say this much. This is a common topic amongst people that I know who are successful. And I've seen both successes, successes of intergenerational, like dynastical fortunes passed down to failures on every level. And I'm not going to summarize this as spoiled kids conversation, because mm -hmm. I'm sure you've encountered the, the breadth of everything from mm -hmm. people who've never had to cut a check in their lives because mom and dad did it to people who were given, you know, just the bare minimum. So first off, when these people reach out to you, like, where are they finding you? What's the motivation, the common motivation amongst this besides just making sure the kids are good with money? Yeah, so this all came about with uh, one particular firm that handles finances of, of families with um, extreme wealth. And so we've been running these workshops for a couple of years. And it originally started back when we were doing these things in person. It started as a, let's try this half-day workshop and see what happens, see who shows up. And it was so wildly popular that they actually asked for a part two. They said, is there a follow-up? Can we come back next year? Mm -hmm. And can we do a full day? And I'm thinking, wow, you want to sit down for like a full day to go over like a, a workshop on 
personal finance and um, financial planning for high net worth families. And they're like, yes, absolutely. So it was an insatiable demand. And from year to year, the families and the kids from these different families, the the net worth of these families range quite a bit. The most recent one we did, I think, was it was just reserved for children of families with over twenty five million in net worth. And you know, to your point, you're absolutely right. There is a whole range of knowledge levels of values, different family dynamics. So to sort of say that there's any one stereotype that you've seen out there that explains, families like this like if you're if your north star is the hbo show succession that's wrong <laughs> that is a very extreme i don't know have little, you ever little, seen that show first of all one of my favorite shows if it, those people yeah. who haven't seen it offensive <laughs> to no end and by the way i'm not sure people realize this will ferrell is the executive producer on that show i and, noticed that when i watched it i was yeah. like the same will ferrell and, I, and it is i looked it up and it is but the thing is is that i think i caught that about after season one and then I, you go back and it's like now the jokes make sense because this is totally his brand of humor right. but just dirtier than he normally could because it's you know he's doing usually pg-13 stuff anyway so that's so succession is kind of like the worst case example to some degree of, of family <laughs> dynamics right but family i always make the statement that family lawyers and estate lawyers have the best and most tragic stories because they get mm-hmm. involved into all the craziness of crazy family dynamics and you like to have a beer with these people and hear some of these things but man sometimes you just want to you, you want to laugh and you want to cry sometimes <laughs> yeah well you know the thing to consider is that in some cases, these families, they have a lot of privilege, a lot of access to things for their kids. They want the best for their kids. And some of these kids are off the charts, smart, type A, like you wouldn't believe. And they come in with a binder full of questions and they're prepared. Mm-hmm. And then you have others where maybe it is one or two generations of wealth. And for them, it's relatively new. And maybe it was their parents that amassed the wealth and they raised their kids in the way that they were raised, which was not without a lot of money. And so they have a different dynamic. But where things really get interesting is when we actually go through some of these exercises. So I'll give you a sense of what we talk about in these workshops and, and these conversations. We do some of the bare basics, like what is credit? What is a credit report? And that is actually one of the, the, the sessions where I see them sort of perk up the most because because it's also, I should say, the age range is 18 to 24. And so in this particular age range, for some of them, this is the first time they've had access to credit. There's a there's a change in the way credit is made available to people with the buy now, pay later versus traditional credit cards and whatnot. And so we talk about those basics. We talk about how do you calculate your own net worth? And now that you know how to do that, don't go home and have the family meeting talking about, let's calculate the family's net worth. So we talk also about communication and the family dynamic. And another section that gets really interesting is communication, both with their partners or potential partners and their family members. And what are sort of those money moments where sparks could fly? Like when Mm -hmm. you're thinking about moving in with someone and you're surprised to realize that your parents have an opinion about that. Yeah. And well, that goes all to the, um, the misconceptions of what a prenup or cohabitation agreement can do are quite amusing. And I, I always say, unfortunately, I've seen many that aren't worth the paper they're written on. And for those <laughs> of you who want to know more about what they can and can't do, please go back and listen to my episode with Heather Hansen, where we cover this in depth. Okay. So you're basically saying now with these people, and it's, it's you know, it's interesting. So you mentioned the kind of one or two generations deep or, or new. I often find, at least in my history, a lot of people who came up with nothing 
want their kids never to suffer that. And I find that that can go a little bit too far. Sometimes it gets to the point of, they feel to realize that the reason they were successful was the struggle. And mm -hmm. by taking away the entire struggle from the child, you know, the child, you know, for lack of a better term, those muscles are atrophied, right? Like they haven't had to worry about that. So you're basically coming in and let's be, let's, that's a segue point. Let's not even go there, but um, <laughs> you can agree there. But Going back to what you were saying earlier, so you're coming in and you're not teaching them, you know, how to open up a Robinhood account and start trading, uh, <laughs> like is the is, is as we're saying this during the GameStop fiasco. You're basically teaching about the absolute fundamentals of financial advice or financial literacy, right? That's that's where you're starting. Yeah, so that's where it starts, and then it can sort of branch from. Okay, now that we have an understanding of these basics, basics because they have this this demand for just the fundamentals. They don't know, and, and this applies not only for people in, in these workshops, but across the board, there's so many people who just haven't ever been explained the basics. We're starting to see financial literacy programs being rolled yeah. out in schools, but there are so many people who really, they're just so lost. And some of the, the questions that you hear, I always have to sort of take a step back and realize just how deep inside the bubble I am, because a question that I think, wow, that is so trivial, is actually quite ubiquitous in society. So it's important to create that safe space so that they can talk to one another. It's it's interesting in that the people who sort of organize the program, they've been really good at making sure that the age is set between 18 to 24. One year we had someone who they really wanted their their child to be a part of the the workshop, but the their child was 40 but had no financial literacy whatsoever. And it killed the dynamic in the room because now you had someone who kind of looked like they were from a different generation and it caused people to clam up a little bit. So it was very important mm. to to create an atmosphere where people can communicate because it's not just a one-way transmission of information, you know, here's a credit report, here's, you know, appreciating versus depreciating assets. We don't really want to talk about what questions do you have, what bothers you, what are the things that give you anxiety? What are the issues that you have that other people don't have? So for example, if you come from a family with a lot of wealth and you take a look at social media, rightly or wrongly, there's a lot of opinions out there about eating the rich. And so they wear that God, no and, and, yeah. and they feel that and they feel, listen, I didn't choose this. I'm not going to say I, I dislike it. I like it, but I feel attacked. And so we talk about the emotional aspects of the situation that they are in and who they can communicate to, how to think about money and their role in society. And I think you'll know when you talk to families with, with higher wealth, they tend to start looking at things on an intergenerational timeframe. So it's not just the individual family units. Sometimes mm -hmm. you're looking and you're planning like a hundred year family plan or you have governance structures for that family. And each generation has a seat at the table and they're invited to commute. The successful ones, the generative mm -hmm. families, they do this, but there's that adage, you know, the, the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. That is a horrible thing to bring up <laughs> to, to family because first of all, they're sick of hearing that. And for those of you who don't know, the, the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations is basically, there's a trend where one generation amasses the wealth, one wastes it, and the third has nothing to show for it. And mm -hmm. so that whether or not that exists to a large degree or not, that is something that these families deal with all the time. And it creates a tension right off the bat. If you go in thinking, we're going to have some engagement with a financial institution to address the shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves problem, you are implicitly saying, hey, 
the previous generations did amazing and you guys are going to screw it up. Let's figure out how to make you less of a screw up. And that is a horrible dynamic to start with. So yeah. it's so much That's more a very just- negative skew to that, right? I mean, like it's a yeah. cautionary tale more than anything else, right? And I, I know you were coming from on this thing because I've, I've seen a couple of, like I said, dynastic portions. And what I find very different about their viewpoint than I would normally have thought early on is they almost look at the wealth as not theirs. It's this like amorphous thing that supports all generations of the family going forward. And their job is to be a steward, not a user of that money. Is that something you've found that it sounds like you found that in, in the, uh, the conversations because of the entire board thing. But to me, it's like, and that's the counterpoint to the entire short sleeves of shirt sleeves thing. It's like, we're not going to let this happen because this is a family apparatus and organization that we are going to bring you in on. And eventually we're just going to hand the reins over. Yeah. And again, it, it varies by family. Huge, huge yeah. variance from family to family. Some of them, they're already thinking like that. They're already communicating. And others, it's almost like there are gatekeepers between the generations. And that generally is not a recipe for success. It can work. It may not be ideal. So there's many different ways for these different families to to sort of figure out how, how do we think about the family's fortunes over time? Who has a say? And are we going to be grooming kids to be a part of the family business? Or is there an exit? And now we have this money and now we all need to be basically a family office and think about things that way, as opposed to they're going to be a part of the business. Are they going to be a part of the family, like the foundation? These can be separate things in these different families. So to say that there's any one sort of path that works for everyone, that's naive. And that's yeah. why it's such a, a much more gauge process is required to figure out what these individual families need. So you say there's no one path, but there must be, you know, there's clearly multiple paths, but are there a couple that you tread more frequently, like general advice that you give to people in scenario A versus scenario B versus scenario three? Like you see, do you have like your bag of tricks that you typically pull out for, for one versus the other, or is it kind of literally got to be figuring out the family dynamics and kind of just working through them? Yeah, it's more the latter. So, so my role is not so much to go in and say, hey, for these families, here's what you guys should be doing. My role is to talk to these kids and say, here's the basics of money and how to think about the world. And here are the, the situations and things that you need to be able to tackle. So I can't tell you what the answers are going to be, but I can give you a framework for thinking about how do you tackle these different things. So for example, when it comes to talking to a partner, Maybe you're you're starting to date someone and we know that people tend to move in with a partner earlier. They tend to get married later. And so they may be cohabiting and they may not realize what that subjects them to in the eyes of the law when it comes to the breakdown of that relationship. And so we talk about how and when do you start communicating with a partner? And everyone's relationship is going to be a little bit different. But we know that there are these money moments in time where it can lead to fights, whether it's a, with a partner or a family member, and they can change your life forever. So these fights that start because they're about some kind of financial aspect can turn into something so much more than that. So we talk about the importance of communication and what can you do in these various situations, no matter what those situations are, to prepare you for that. So think about all the big moments in life that can have an impact on your life, whether it's an exam which could determine your grade and where you go to school, whether it's training for a marathon or preparing for a job. These are all things that you prepare for. You don't just say, okay, let's have that job interview and not do any prep. So 
these big money conversations or money decisions, you can prepare for that as well. And so we, we talk about strategies where you can prepare the person that you're going to talk to to prepare yourself so that you don't blow up in the moment and cause irreparable damage or change the trajectory of your life in a negative way because you simply didn't prepare. So it's, it's much more general than giving them specific advice. That's for, you know, the advisors of that firm or what the advisors that the family uses. That's not my role. I don't get into the weeds to that extent. It's more about setting them up so that they have a framework mm -hmm. for making decisions and thinking about them. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've heard all kinds of funny stories from this realm. And actually, I'm going to go back to your thing about moving in with someone or the money moments in life. And I think back to when I was getting married and being Catholic, we had to go through the marriage classes in advance. And there was one session that was particularly about marriage, about money. And me and my wife had always had an open dialogue about this, even when we were dating, just because that's the kind of people we both are. But it was, so they had us these worksheets and we, I fill it out, I hand it over to her. She's like, yeah, that's right. And meanwhile, we just overhear everybody else in the room, right? And it was just like, <laughs> you you make how much? You make, wait a minute, You're I thought you kidding. were- No, you know, like it was, but it was on both ends of the spectrum, right? And it's like, you, wait a minute, you have how much in credit card debt? And I'm sitting there going like, you yeah, already have like, kids? <laughs> yeah, like that was the one thing that was missing, quite honestly, right? And it was it was like, you're less than 12 months away from legally being married and you haven't had this conversation, right? Like, what is going on? But what do you I, mean I, you're I, not I allowed to cross again, the border? <laughs> yeah, well, I have this one thing. Yes, yeah, so it's... Uh, Oh yeah. No, there was actually, there was no session on criminal records. That would have been amusing potentially. <laughs> so yeah. So, I mean, I take it for granted that this is second nature to me, but not everybody's raised in, a, in an environment where dialogue about money is normal, right? Here's an observation or question for you. Do you find that there's a difference in the children's ability to understand these concepts based on when the family made their money? Like if, if they were born into it and, you know, mom and dad were successful from day, from the day they were born and this money was normal to them versus they matured into it and saw the evolution evolution of it. Is there any kind of, have you, have you noticed any kind of difference between these people? No, I can't say that I have. I'm not saying that it doesn't exist. I just have not observed that. I would love to, you know, run some surveys and do some qualitative interviews with them to learn more about their, their individual family dynamics. But I think there probably is something to that because in my, in my own research separate, where mm -hmm. I ask people about you know, the households that they grew up in, the financial security and the impact it has on their financial well-being later on in life, there was that that negative correlation. And so the more financially insecure people were, the more they wanted to avoid ever repeating something bad happening. So they tend to be a little bit more vigilant yeah. with teaching themselves and, and whatnot. And I do think, you know, one of the things that does kind of crop up is when you have families that are able to support their kids and provide anything that they want. Some of them have different strategies as to how they can prepare their kids. Is it withholding certain resources so that they understand failure? Is it encouraging them to say, listen, you start your own venture, it may fail, but you're going to learn so much from just going through those processes. So, so we'll give you a little bit of seed capital here, but you're on your own. Others are, you know, here, here's a project, you do it. So it is quite varied, but it's an interesting question. I would like to study that, but that's that's sort of not my latitude for what I'm brought in to do. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I, I think, yeah, I have a plenty of anecdotal evidence, but I can't say I can point to it. Also, incidentally, and I'm sure you've seen this too, 
there's a disproportionate number of financial advisors in the business who came from financial hardship for the very same reasons, right? Mm -hmm. You know, most people obsess about it and basically it leads them to that conclusion. Now, let's go back to the financial literacy piece. And this kind of want to talk about uh, how how effective you feel it's being. I'm sure it is effective, but to what degree? Because one of the challenges that, that happens with financial literacy, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. I'll tell you right now. It comes down to too often I find that some of these messages come from conflicted parties. Big surprise, the insurance company wants you to buy more insurance. The Some of it is just all too geared around the concept of do-it-yourself investing, which there's so much to cover before we even get to fundamentals of investing. And the other issue, and this was, I think Michael Kiss has talked about this study that showed that if people had not used a something they learned in a financial literacy class within, I think it was about six months, it was as if they didn't learn it at all. It's like anything else. You can learn a new skill, but if you don't practice it, it's going to go to waste. Given that you're doing these sessions, it looks like repeatedly with people. First off, what kind of impact, do you, what, what's really sticking with them? What's not sticking with them? And how are you addressing that? Yeah. So you're right about the knowledge decay issue. So that was mm-hmm. the user lose it sort of phenomena that was identified. I think that was the Nettermeyer paper. Leave it to the neuroscience guy to know that paper, but continue. <laughs> the <laughs> subsequent, subsequent studies, I'll say that that performed um, meta-analyses on a, a much wider range of studies. And also remember financial literacy implementation in schools is in its infancy. So you do a research study in 2015, looking at what data you have, it covered call it, I don't know, 300 initiatives. Three years later, there's 3,000. So there's a lot more data and also fine tuning of what happened in the first round being adjusted so that it is more effective. So it is getting better. There is certainly a sort of a knowledge decay, but that knowledge decay exists with everything. How many yeah. people remember how to do long division? So that that aside, but, <laughs> but I agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that aside, and, and I agree, you know, financial literacy is, is far from perfect, but doesn't mean you should stop it. No. The questions that these attendees will have, you know, after a couple of months, they're not going to remember the answers that were provided in the sort of the fundamentals of financial literacy. But when they walk out of that room or these days virtual meetings, what I want them to have is the framework for figuring out if I don't know the answer, what is my first step to figure out how I can solve this problem. And so for them, they're going to have access to, in some cases, a team of advisors. And I say, listen, if you don't know, if you don't have the confidence in making your decision and being able to explain it to someone why or what your rationale is for it, you have a lot of resources because of your station in life. So use them. Mm-hmm. And so if for them, it's the confidence to say, yes, I can I can bother my, my parents' advisor. And sometimes they think that they are putting them out by contacting them, right? They feel bad contacting the family's advisor because- they feel like they're putting them out. I say, no, your family pays for this advice. This is part of the package. You should be free to to avail yourself of those those resources. And that comes down to, again, the dynamics, how the younger generation deals with the world mm-hmm. in general. They just don't like dealing with humans generally. And so getting them and the families to understand that, you know, how they interact is going to be different. So having them sit down with someone for a meeting, it's it's tough. It's not as easy as it sounds. They need other means to communicate with the family's advisors. Excellent. I mean, it's, yeah, it's funny. Um, I would think that the dynamic of the children reaching out to the family's advisors at that level of wealth is far less contentious than it is on smaller account. It's like, I, I here's the thing. I, I get this in conversation with other advisors all the time. It's like, you know, I'm like, oh, my client wants me to take on their kid, right? And my response is, 
okay, what's the problem? Well, they have no money. I'm like, okay, but the parents have money. And they're like, yeah, but you know, I'm not making money off of them. It's like, but you're making money off the family unit. And I said, besides that, everybody keeps on talking about this massive intergenerational wealth transfer that's going to happen and the opportunity for advisors and everything else. And these people keep on talking about how they're going to retire and sell their book one day. And I keep saying like, so you're going to sell your book and it's going to be a bunch of 70 year olds and none of their kids. <laughs> Right. right. Like, have you thought about how little I'm willing to pay for that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The value exactly, of it is very right? low because so the conversion, the, yeah, the conversion on those uh, or the retention of those assets is going to be very low if you are yeah. not providing service to the next generation as well. And so how to do that is different as well, but it, you can't just ignore it, especially if your your rationale is I'm not making money dealing with this part of the, that's horrific. Exactly. I mean, you know, if you had, if you had a client who had 10 million bucks invested with you and they had a question about whether they should buy or lease a car, are you going to say, well, I don't make money on advising on leasing versus financing cars? No, of course you're going to provide advice. That's what you're being paid to do. Yeah. Well, I mean, some people are, are saying they're providing advice, but then they frame it within a very narrow confine, right? <laughs> yes. like, you know, when you actually do full comprehensive planning, it's a different story. So I'm going to guess that this has been pretty well received and successful because you keep on being asked to do it. So that's the best uh, testament you can get there. Just to make sure we cover this before we wrap up. The key areas, what, you know, you already talked about credit, the basics and fundamentals of credit. I'm guessing you've gotten basics and fundamental of budgeting. What specific other like key areas do you really hone in on and really resonate with these kids? Young adults, what am I saying? Yeah, a couple. One is sort of a, a framework for thinking about money over a lifetime, their earning potential, how much they keep, how much they spend, what goes to appreciating assets, what goes to depreciating assets. There is a certain expectation being in certain circles, how much you spend on things. So we talk about how they feel about those competing tensions. There's a certainly a keeping up with the Joneses phenomenon. And there's also the eat the rich messaging that we see a lot on social media. So how do they deal with that? Another yeah. big area, again, goes back. It all kind of comes down to communication, but specific situations when you are maybe dating someone who comes from a family with either less or even extremely more wealth than you and the situations mm -hmm. that, that arise. So for example, your parents give a, a gift to your partner and they think, oh, that's so nice of them to do that. And then the, the recipient is like, creates a lot of anxiety because maybe the nature of that gift is maybe they think is overly generous and it creates some, some tension there. If you're serious about someone in your, your parents, they may with all the best intentions say, oh, maybe we can, you know, think of a spot for them in the family business or nudge mm -hmm. them to take more risks or something like that. And then depending on the partner, they may say, yeah, that's amazing. I would love to be a part of this. And others are like, no, no, I, what do you do? Are you trying to change me? Am I not good enough for your child? Yep. And so there's all these preconceptions. A lot of it comes from pop culture <laughs> and whatever those can or can't, some people, they don't feel those tensions, but many of them do. And so how do you, how do you address some of those, those situations? The other Are thing you I'll saying say, that what we, what we see on like from Hollywood about money is not true? Really? <laughs> well, I mean, anyway. when you look at, when you look at Succession, which you know, I, I do love that show, um, I think maybe one thing that would be interesting is is for people who have seen that show is to sort of say, which character are you closest to? You know, just kind of like as a fun exercise, because there's there's so many layers to peel with that completely dysfunctional oh, man. Roy there, family. There is no good answer to that question, is there? <laughs> like, no matter what, you're like, you're just a horribly flawed human being. <laughs> you know, I feel like, I'll go come out of that. I feel like it's kind of like Mad Men, how on some level, everybody was deeply flawed, except that they turned that up to 11. And then they involved family dynamics. And it was just like, oh my God, kablamo. So um, let's, anyway. let's, let's look at the other <laughs> side of that, just so people 
people yeah. don't think that that's what we're trying to imply. No, I mean, there are a lot of families like, uh, have you heard of like the the Polaris Project or the the Family Business Network have these these groups that they put together and, and families will think about how they can take these resources that they have, whether they're still involved in their businesses or they've exited the businesses and now are running essentially these, these family offices. What can they do with that? to improve the lot of the world? What are the causes that they want to focus in on? And philanthropy is a, is a, is a big topic and getting everyone a, a seat at that table to talk about what do we as a family, as stewards of this capital, and also people mm-hmm. who live on this planet, how are we going to use this so that we think about what we want to achieve and what we can do for other people around us, what problems we want to try and help solving. So that's where, you know, when you've gotten to that level, when you are thinking really, truly intergenerationally, and you're thinking about the family from the aspect of different generations, you have these governance structures that are in there. And it's amazing what these families can do. So I just want to say, I know that there's a lot of rhetoric out there that say, tax them this much or whatever, fine, but don't don't just attack people and understand that that people who have a lot of wealth, they're not oblivious to this. And there are many who are doing some really incredible things with their money. I would agree. And I, you know, I'll go, Sam Harris is quite frequently talking about this subject and it comes up, but you know, his perfect retort is, um, you know, when people make the accusation that the only way they got to a billion Rowling's stole money by creating Harry Potter. Like, give me a break, right? Like, there, you know, <laughs> let's let's be honest. There's different ways to make money, and you can have an absolute being conscience about becoming wealthy. And as for you know the injustices in wealth inequality and taxation, those are maybe they're the benefactors of that, but they're not necessarily the perpetrators of it. So let's let's cut let's cut them a break to some degree. And you know what? It it doesn't. Yeah, it's not only it's not just Bill Gates and uh, and Warren Buffett saying yeah, we probably should pay higher taxes, right? There's a lot of people <laughs> out there saying that this ain't quite right. Yeah, absolutely. So great. So I think uh, one of the last things I want to cover, so just assuming this podcast is being heard uh, by people who are in a situation wanting to make sure that they set their kids up for the best possible you know, success when it comes to dealing with the eventual fortune or small or large fortune they're going to inherit or be a part of, what are the first pieces of advice you give them? So this is your opportunity to help correct, correct them, course, correct them right now. <laughs> How do they get started? Okay. So I think the main aspect is you have to have trusted advisors. So take the time to really research your options and kick the tires. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there are so many people who who end up with an accountant, lawyer, advisor, whatever, because it was the first person that just sort of presented them to themselves. Yep. And really you need to take these these decisions a lot more heavily than that. And ideally, you know, if you're in a situation where you've amassed a lot of wealth and you're trying to figure out, all right, so what what do I need to do? You need to find a team that can support that. So I do think that there is something to sort of the the advisors who work in these niches and they have experience with that because the nuances, the the complicated minutiae, the details, cross-border taxation, having assets here. I mean, this is very complicated stuff. You do not need to know how to solve for that as an individual. You just need Nor to know should the you. people you hire. Yeah, because my God, it takes hours and hours and hours. Well, and hours. great. You know, sell the family business and get the financial planning at a comprehensive <laughs> level because that's what you're talking about, right? Like you focus on, yeah, and, and make less money for it. So focus on continue your little empire building and let someone else handle it. Yeah, I will say that these families tend to do a pretty good job at doing that because they tend to have a their fortunes through the running of an organization. And so they mm-hmm. have some experience in sort of figuring out, all right, who really knows what they're doing, who really doesn't. And so their success is sometimes, you know, it's it's through a combination of luck and, and skill, but 
they tend to know what they're doing. They tend to be pretty, um, pretty smart people. So they're pretty good at finding the right people to deal with. But once you find those people, you know, make sure that everyone in your family knows that they can be a part of that as well. That's what mm-hmm. tends to separate the generative families, the families that continue to, mm-hmm. to grow their wealth over time, even after the exit of a business. It really comes down to communication. That seems to be the common thread. So much of what we do does, and I will say, just to echo that, landing on the first person that you you get introduced to. I mean, I've I've been referred people on several occasions where I'm the first person they've spoken with, and they haven't really they're like, oh, this is great, you know, let's let's get started. And my response is no. I want you to go to talk to at least three or four other people. Like the reality <laughs> is, is that you need to make sure that I'm a fit for you. I think we are. It sounds great and whatever, and I'm happy to work with you. But I think you owe it to yourself to explore this conversation because, frankly. If you're making this call and you're you're specifically dealing with a with a financial planner who's going to handle all this stuff for you, this is a decision that hopefully you only have to make once to twice in your lifetime. So make sure it's the right decision because this is not the same thing as like you know I'm going to change dentists to the one down the street, right? There's a lot more involved than that, and not to demean dentists. Uh, I have many dentist clients who might be listening right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that reminds but, me, but, I'm, I'm due for my cleaning. I haven't been in like a year because of the lockdowns and stuff. <laughs> You know, mine is actually no, just up the road from you in case you need referrals. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the first piece. And I will say that very often, though, I think a lot of these families do end up in situations where you know, it seems to happen with accounts quite frequently, and it does most certainly happen with financial advisors. But I'll often get clients I bring on board, well, they'll say, listen, I, you know, I've been with this guy since I was, I started out, you know, you let me know if they're up to snuff or not. And that's 50, 50. And unfortunately I will say this much, very few advisors or accounts have, have I ever seen who will say your needs have gone beyond my capacity to address them. So the reality is there's a lot of faking until they mm-hmm. make it. And there's an incentive to keep people around. So, so be cognizant, make sure the people you are working with are up to the task. So um, this is this has been great, Preet. Uh, first of all, it's always always amusing catching up with you and, and talking about television. And uh, we really have to start recording our, our our pre pre interview chats. I think those are fascinating. <laughs> those are those are. But <laughs> we may have to start talking about a podcast where we just talk about random stuff. Uh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. So um, with that, uh, where can people find you? PreetBanerjee.com is the best place to go. Website, I'm revamping it because I looked at it six months ago and I realized, wow, I haven't updated this in years. It still sucks, but I'm eventually going to put everything onto that one page. So the podcast, the YouTube channels, because there's multiple, the uh, people who are interested in the consulting I do for the wealth management companies, people who are interested in Money Gaps, which is a financial planning platform for advisors. So everything is just going to end up there. So PreetBanerjee.com is the best place to be. For the record, no one's ever satisfied with their website. I constantly want to pull my hair out over mine. Um, <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. So that was this week's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. I hope you enjoyed that. And uh, if you're in a situation where you are looking to make sure your kids basically are going to be set up for success as they eventually become stewards of the family wealth, make sure you have the right people in place to help coach them through that and make sure that they are engaging those kids, teaching them about everything from the fundamentals to the role they're going to take in the company. And also, as you heard, watch Succession. Great show. And until next time, as always... This has been uh, Jason Ferrer, Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Take care, and I'll catch you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. 
You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you.